Thank you, David, for leading us this morning as Pastor Laramie is out today at his um, serving today at the first church in which he ever served in Mississippi. They're celebrating their 125th anniversary, anniversary as a gospel-centered uh, people of God. So he's um, there with that congregation. Thank you so much, David. Let me encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 13, as we continue to make our way through uh, this incredible narrative of God's revelation of himself to his people. We have encountered a number of very fun texts in the book of Romans that have elicited a number of conversations. For example, the entirety of our time together in Romans chapter 9 through 11 elicited a number of conversations. I was engaged in a lot of those conversations. It sparked a whole lot of conversations. Those are wonderful things to to talk about. A lot of things in Romans are celebrated by the Christian church. For example, we all affirm Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We celebrate that eternal truth. We celebrate Romans chapter 4, that we are indeed, like the Old Testament saints before us, saved by faith. And yet, we recognize there are a number of texts in the book of Romans of which there has not been a settled, clear affirmation on behalf of the church throughout her history. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, as you might imagine, has elicited a lot of conversations, not only in contemporary Christian life, this text of Scripture has elicited conversations throughout the history of Christianity, I suppose, even in the context to which the Apostle Paul himself has written as he has written to a group of believers living in a completely different era from which you and I live. Paul, in Romans chapters 1 through 12, has laid for us a theological position as it relates to salvation, as it relates to faith. Much like what Paul does in all of his writings, the first several chapters are full of doctrinal reflections, primarily about Christ and his church. And then Paul will switch at the end and flesh out some implications. And this is exactly what Paul has been doing for us here in Romans chapter 12. You might remember as we started this section in Romans, I noted for you that Romans chapter 12 verses 1 through 2 in some measurable way functions as a controlling theme in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 12 verses 1 through, sorry, through 12 through 15, I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that, you, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the perfect, what is the good and acceptable and perfect. Paul, for example, last week, continues to flesh out for you and me exactly 
what the implications are for those who by faith have trusted in Jesus of what a renewed mind looks like lived in relationship with others. For example, last week we noted in chapter 12 and verses uh, 9 through 13, Paul is going to reflect on how this transformed mind functions by and large or affects by and large the relationship that we have between brothers and sisters. And then starting in uh, chapter 14, for the majority part, 14 down through 21, there are a few uh, places where we noted last week, it seems he's uh, circling back around, if you will, to the church, but by and large, chapters, uh, verses 14 through 21, are a reflection on how we as believers relate and function to those outside of the church. So it would be no surprise that Paul, writing from Corinthians to Rome, would also give a reflection for Christians living in Rome of how they are to relate to those outside of them, in this particular case, being the government. And as Paul relates for the believers in Rome how they are to relate to the government, Paul is also going to flesh out for them finally what might be a rather shocking statement, as he mentioned in chapter 12, verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That, of course, would have caused some questions to rise in the hearts and minds of the believers at Rome. Do I have to wait until the return of Christ for vengeance? Is there in any measurable way vengeance from an earthly standpoint? And Paul is going to answer that question for believers in this text this morning in Romans chapter 13, verses one through seven. Let's begin reading the text of Scripture. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject. This word that Paul uses here is a Greek word, hupotasso, that he uses oftentimes in reflection on submission. For example, this is the word that Paul will use in Ephesians chapter 5 as he tells the church at large that we should live our lives in submission to one another and that verb would be the verb that we pull down into uh, the latter part of chapter 5 as we reflect on that relationship between husbands and wives, as wives are to give submission to their husbands. Or as Paul would say later in chapter 6, that um, slaves are to be subject, submissive to their, their masters, and also for children to their parents. Let every person be subject, submissive to governing authorities. Now Paul uses a word here for governing authorities that our English Bibles give for you and me as a help and interpretation. Uh, this word here that Paul, that in our English Bible says governing authorities is a word that um, quite literally means those with uh, high responsibility or high duty. But of course, it's fair to translate 
uh, this text as governing authorities, for Paul is going to jump down in a few minutes and speak to us specifically about these governing authorities and the responsibility that they have in wielding the sword as a means of protection and provision for society. For there, verse 1, is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive approval. For he is God's deacon. He is God's servant. The same word from which we get our English words deacon. He is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, submission, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, or we could better translate this, for this reason you are currently paying taxes, Paul says, for, for the authorities are ministers of God. He uses a different word here for ministers of God, a word that is oftentimes used in reflection upon those who are serving in the context of the synagogue and service to the Lord, leading in worship in some measurable sense. For these, are, these authorities are ministers of God attending to, the very, to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to the, to this, pay to, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Paul gives for us one controlling thought in this passage of scripture, and it occurs right here at the very beginning in this imperative. Let every person. Now, obviously, Paul is writing a book to, a letter to, a group of believers. So, this clearly applies to believers, but I would also like to make an argument for you this morning that this every person is in relationship to all. Whether you're a believer here this morning or not, each of us bears a responsibility to live our lives in submission to authority in the context of this passage of Scripture, in submission to governing authorities. This is what Paul wants to communicate to the believers in Rome. We bear a responsibility to live our lives as people under submission. Our submission to people in authority is ultimately an indication of our lives in submission to Christ. This word here for governing authorities is not just a reflection on Caesar, for example. It's much broader than Caesar. We could apply this 
understanding of submission to governing authorities or people in high positions of authority to be in regard to a whole host of uh, people in governing authorities. For example, the uh, right application of this text for me and you and the context of our culture would be to give submission to a police officer. If you were pulled over on the road, perhaps you think you're not even doing anything wrong, it is right for you to pull over when you see those lights or that siren, you hear, hear the siren, it is right for you to pull over. And when you engage with that police officer, it is right for you to do so from a submissive spirit. For those of you who are students in school, it would be right and appropriate, a right response for you to live your life in submission to that authority in your classroom as an expression, student, of your submission to Christ. Christians should be people who live their lives with a submissive attitude, and in this text, that submission to authorities, or in the context of the body of Christ, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, that we should be submissive to one another. It's a general disposition that we should give to one another, that we live in submission with one another. It's a way in which we relate well with one another. In the context of the home, it is right for the wife to live in submission to her husband. It's one of the ways in which you show that you have a right relationship with the Lord. Children, it is right for you to live in submission to your parents as evidence of your relationship with the Lord. Now notice from this text, Paul is gonna give us two reasons for this principle for Christians in relationship to government. The first principle he gives us right here at the very end of verse one. The first principle that he gives us is Government itself is from God. It is ordained by God. Look what he says. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by whom? By God. This is the testimony and witness Throughout the text of Scripture, oftentimes it's hard, is it not, when we, ref- when we reflect upon history, to understand exactly what this prevailing thought of the sovereignty of God as it relates to his supremacy over the rise and fall of kingdoms. For example, it's very difficult to understand Adolf Hitler as being a ruler who has been installed by the sovereignty of God. 
it's difficult. If you were an Israelite fleeing down to Egypt to comprehend this prevailing thought that God reigns supreme over those who are in positions of authority. Perhaps it's even difficult for you to comprehend and understand in the context of a marriage gone bad. That even in that marriage gone bad, there is a command for you, wife, to be submissive to your husband. If believers had to understand everything in order to walk in obedience to God, perhaps we would never walk in obedience to God. I don't comprehend the reign of tyrants, and yet Paul tells us that even those tyrants operate under the sovereignty of God. Why do we live our lives in submission to government? Because God himself has ordained them. Because God has himself instilled them. And then notice verse two, there's a warning. Be careful. Be careful how you live in relationship to governing authorities. Look at the warning. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. There's a pointed warning here, is there not? I think there's a double meaning to this understanding of judgment. In just a few moments, we're going to see that Paul clearly says there is a temporal judgment for your disobedience. For example, if I get out here on Jones Creek Motor Speedway and drive 65 miles an hour like the rest of everybody down Jones Creek Motor Speedway, and the East Baton Rouge Parish Sheriff's deputy is sitting out there and pulls me over and writes me a ticket, guess what I have just incurred? In a very real way, the judgment of God. Yet I can't help but think also that Paul, in the context of this passage of Scripture, is also reminding us, as believers, that we ought to be careful how we live because our submission is a sign of our submission ultimately to Christ and to live your life outside of submission of Christ is an indication that you're not a believer and ultimately one day those who have rejected Christ's authority will one day face the eternal wrath of God. There will be ultimate eschatological judgment against those who have rebelled against God. So there's a warning, a stern warning, that we must live our lives in this way. Otherwise, we risk 
the judgment of God. But notice Paul gives now the second point for why believers should live in submission to God. First reason, the end of verse one, for there is no authority except that authority that has been given by God. The second reason, even in your English Bibles, you see it. Verse three starts with a conjunction, a four. Go back to the very end of verse one. The very end of verse one starts with a four. He's given us reasons here for submission. The second reason for submission, verse three, for rulers are not a terror to good judgment, but to bad judgment. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant. For what purpose? You're good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. The second reason why we walk in submission to governing authorities, they bear a sword. He packs a big stick of authority. Now notice the purpose for which God has designed government. Paul in Romans chapter 13 verses 3 through 4 is given for us the divine purpose of government. He's telling us why government has been installed. He's given for us how government should respond to the people. He's giving the boundaries for how government should operate in relationship to her people. Just as he's given us boundaries for how we are to live in relationship to the governing authorities, he's also here giving now the boundaries for the governing authorities. What are those boundaries for the governing authorities? Quite simply, if you're doing nothing wrong, then government has been given to us as one of God's signs of his kindness to encourage us. Now, when's the last time you paid your taxes and thought, praise God, this is very encouraging? If you obey the rules, if you obey the laws, you have absolutely no need to worry. Now, this is interesting. Paul is writing to the Romans during the reign of who? Nero. Now, what do you know about Nero? Most people know the bombastic, vituperative, vindictive, evil Nero. But when Paul is writing the book of Romans, this is not the expression of Nero that the Christians in Rome would have known. Paul is writing at a time before Nero turns his anger to the Christians and blames him for a fire and ultimately unleashes the wrath of the Roman government against the believers. For it would have made no sense for Paul to have been writing to the Romans at a time in which the Romans were being thrown into the Colosseum and eaten by bears 
for the Christians in Rome to have any type of concept that government is indeed a means of good. So Paul is writing to a church in Rome at a period in which, by and large, there's good relationships between the church and the state. This is the divine purpose of government. For those who are doing good, a means of encouragement. No need to fear. If you get on Jones Creek Motor Speedway and drive 45 miles an hour for the next 100 years, it is safe to assume that you can pass the sheriff's deputy 200,000 times and he will encourage you every time by not pulling you over. A means of good. But what happens if you do evil? One of God's divinely appointed purposes for government is to encourage those who are doing good and to wield the sword against those who are doing bad. And I would venture to say that the large majority of people sitting in this auditorium this morning are exceedingly thankful for this divine purpose of government. You're thankful that if at 1 a.m. on a sleepy Saturday morning, you hear banging at your front door and someone is trying to come through your front door, you're thankful that you can call 911 and governing authorities are gonna show up at your house and bear the sword in protecting you against evil. And culture at large is thankful for this responsive government, are we not? If someone in your neighborhood that you are completely disconnected from were to be murdered, and they are to have a trial in East Baton Rouge Parish, and there's every bit amount of evidence that he murdered him, and I have no idea who he or him are, I am very glad to read the advocate the next day and read that he is going to jail for the rest of his life. Aren't you? I'm glad to read when the government wields the sword, brings about the law and the persecution of those who do evil. Now look what Paul does in verse five. He communicates again the command that he gave us in verse one and he communicates again for us his two reasons, yet here in verse five, he turns those two reasons on their head. Verse five, therefore, based on this, be in subjection. Be obedient. Be submissive to that divinely appointed and anointed purpose of which God has given us government. And he reminds us again of what those two purposes are. First, he says in verse five, not only to avoid God's wrath 
avoid God's judgment, but also for the sake of conscience. See, friends, Paul has already talked somewhat about conscience in the book of Romans. He's reminded us in chapters 1 and chapter 2 and down into chapter 3 that there isn't one person who will ever have the opportunity to stand before God and say, God, I am innocent. I knew nothing of your declaration of repentance and a call for faith and trust and hope in Jesus. No such person will be able to stand before God on the day of judgment and claim innocence because they didn't know or they had not heard. Why? Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2 that God has written his very law upon our heart. Creation itself communicates to us that there is a God. Therefore, we stand before God guilty. What Paul is saying here in regard to conscience is God has woven into the very conscience of humanity this understanding of submission. You could apply this in the context of children to uh, parents or in the context of uh, boss to employee or employee to boss. In other words, Paul is acknowledging this general principle that God has woven into the very fabric and heart of all people. We are a people who live in submission. We also walk in submission, as he's already noted, so as to avoid God's wrath. And then look what he does in verses 6 and 7. In verses 6 and 7, Paul is going to do what every good preacher will do. He's going to apply this principle of submission for us to a very specific context. Now, you can spend the rest of your next two weeks Perhaps you'd like to go on vacation and pick up a number of commentaries or books that have been written on this very subject, and uh, you might enjoy reading about the tax code of the Romans during the time period in which Paul is writing. Knock yourself out. But it doesn't matter for our specific understanding of this text exactly what Paul means here uh, in regard to taxes or revenue. It doesn't matter for our context exactly what the specific tax percentage was. Paul gives us an example of what submission looks like and government's right to demand of that submission as it demands things of people along those lines of which God has ordained. Whether you or I like it or not, paying taxes according to Scripture is a good thing. Now, we might can have a conversation about the percentage of the taxes we ought to be paying and whether that's a good or bad thing, but paying taxes are a good thing. So look what Paul does. He commends the church at Rome. You guys are doing a good job. You're paying taxes. That's verse 6. For because of this, you are paying taxes. The Christians aren't fighting the Roman government and paying taxes. Of course, this comes from Jesus himself. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar, and unto the Lord what is the Lord's. For authorities 
are ministers of God attending to this very thing. One of those good purposes that government does in serving people is taking your money. Verse seven, therefore we should pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. As Paul has been given a list of very general principles flowing from chapter 12, verse 3, so too does he conclude in verse 7 with giving us some general principles. Christians should be people who give honor. I'm old enough to remember, for example, when referring to a police officer as a cop was considered derogatory. I think it's a regular vernacular of our culture now. So in some ways it's hard for me to say the cop. I wanna say the police officer. Why? Paul has given us the principle that we should live our lives in giving honor and respect to people for these reasons. Is Paul in Romans 13 verses one through seven commanding absolute unquestionable obedience to government. How do we answer the question? We can answer the question in the negative. No, Paul is not commanding absolute obedience to governing authorities. We can conclude that for a couple of reasons. One, it's interesting to note that Paul uses, he had a variety of different words that are available to him, but he uses the word submission. He doesn't use the word obedience. Secondly, Paul clearly is giving for us a divine purpose for government and for you and me in response to government. So that when government operates outside of its boundaries, Romans 13 is not commanding obedience on behalf of believers. For example, the apostles in Acts chapter five decide they're gonna take this gospel message that is angering the ruling authorities in Jerusalem. And they preach that gospel message. And what happens to the apostles as they preach that gospel message? The authorities come after them, do they not? And what do they tell them to do? You can't do this. And what do the apostles respond? 
Acts chapter five, verse 29. We must obey God rather than man. Scripture clearly gives for us a disposition that complete, total, absolute authority, uh, obedience, submission to governing authorities is not absolute. But you say, okay, pastor, I get it. I clearly see it. The example that you're giving us clearly shows that if there is a clear revelation from God's word that says Christians must do X, in this case, Christians must proclaim the gospel, and the government says, no, you can't proclaim the gospel, then we clearly see that it is okay and right for Christians to not submit to the government. But what about in situations or cases where there is no specific command or revelation from God concerning Christians' obedience. For example, could the government institute a one-child policy? Could the American government say, as families, you can only have one child? And to have more children, we're going to come and take that child, or maybe even more profoundly, we're going to sterilize both mom and dad so that you can't have more than one child. Can the government do that? Could government require all children to attend a government-recognized school where a state-sponsored religion was taught. Now remember, I'm asking the question, can I be unsubmissive, can I rebel, if you will, against the government if I don't have a very clear, specific, revealed will of God against which I'm rebelling. For example, could government prohibit someone from being a member of the church for more, of the same church for more than five years? Could our state government say, our parish government say, you can't be a member of one church for more than five years after which you have to go be a member of another church? Could government ban corporal punishment? Could government ban giving Bibles to minors? Could government require 50% of the deacons at Woodlawn Baptist Church be from an ethnic background other than white. 
Could government ban translating scriptures into other languages? Here's one that I think everybody in this room would plead deeply for. Could government limit all sermons to 30 minutes? Could government set a cap on the number of people that could participate in one church? Could the government say only 50 people can gather in one church? Those demanding that unless you can show me specifically in the text of Scripture where the Bible says you must or you ought not, otherwise you must live in submission to the government, reminds me of my 14-year-old child who says, Show me specifically in the Bible where it says I can't drink or get a tattoo or enumerate a whole host of other things. Friends, there are a host of issues that we arrive at in terms of theological positions that are not just one passage in the book of the Bible that says you must do X or you ought not do Y. And that doing either of those is a violation of submission to governing authorities. I would like to submit to you this morning that the overwhelming answer to the questions that I've just proposed, should Christians have to submit to these type of government dictates, otherwise they live contrary to the word of God and in sin, the answer is no. The answer is no for a prevailing number of reasons. Number one, let me speak specifically to our context. It perhaps might be a fun sermon to conjecture what the right response of believers who live in communist China should be to Romans 13, but I don't live in communist China. It could be a fun exercise to take a trip back into time and submit ourselves under Nero in 64 as he's placing Christians in the context of the Colosseum and turning tigers and bears loose at them. But I don't live in 64 AD. What is the right interpretation of Romans 13 for an American context? Bear with me, if you will, for a moment and just a brief survey of our governing structure. We live in a constitutional republic. The highest law and authority in this country is not the will of your pastor. 
it's not the dictate of your husband or the command of your boss. Nor is it the police officer who pulls you over on Jones Creek. It is the Constitution of the United States of America. As this country was founded, listen at these words from the U.S. Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights or inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just power from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends or of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Article 6 of the U.S. Constitution reads, the senators and representatives before mentioned and the members of the several states' legislatures and all executive and judicial officers, both of the United States and of the several states, shall be bound by oath or affirmation to support this Constitution but no religious test shall ever be required as qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. The highest authority in this country is not the mandate of a governor or a mayor or a husband. It is the Constitution of the United States. The Tenth Amendment notes, quote, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectfully, or to the people. So how do we, as Christians in America, respond to a government that requires of us that which the Constitution or the laws of this land have not compelled. What happens, we might say, when the government operates outside of their God-given structure? Suppose a police officer came knocking at your door today. And he says, I have evidence that your 16-year-old son has been involved in a murder, and I want to search your house. What do you say to those police officers? What? Do you have a warrant? If that police officer, a governing authority, says to you, no, sir, we don't have a warrant, but we want, to let, we want us to let you in our house. Are you in rebellion against God if you say no to that police officer? No. Why? To what authority have you made an appeal? Constitution. All right, let's step outside the Constitution for a minute. 
Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says to the church that you ought to submit and obey to your leaders. There is an admonition from the text of scripture that the congregation has a responsibility of submission to her pastors. Suppose I was to give a directive to the congregation today that on Mondays, if your name ends with A through C, you have to bring me pecan pie. And on Tuesday, if your name ends with D to L, you have to bring me lemon meringue pie. And on Saturdays, if your name ends uh, with the letter, um, what's some more letters? <laughs> M through S, M through S. You have to mow my lawn. Are you in rebellion against God if you reject my order to bring me food and mow my lawn? Why? Scripture says you are to obey and submit. Because I am giving you a directive that is outside of my lane of authority. To the same extent, we don't pledge allegiance and neither is it God honoring to submit to the dictates of a government that is operating contrary to the highest authority in our country, this United States Constitution, nor is it God honoring or demanding that I submit to a government that is operating outside of their lane. Now you say, Pastor, that's because you live in America and you just don't like face mask. Well, that's true. Or Pastor, you live currently in America and you want to reject a demand that I must be vaccinated. That too is true. But my theological position and that of the testimony of history is not founded in a current expression of American culture. I'd like to take you down a road for just a moment. A history of political thought. I put some screens for you behind so that you might see what I mean by a history of political thought. The view of Aristotle ruled the prevailing thought of politics for well over 500 years. Aristotle primarily saw the role of government as performing a very positive function. Aristotle would not operate with the same theological hermeneutic that, say, Augustine would operate with, who saw humanity from the standpoint of total depravity. We are sinners. We are born sinners. We are born in rebellion against God. Aristotle 
also founded, and this is important, his primary take on the role of government was found in natural law. There's an argument that can be made. Much of what takes place in our constitutional structure in America, likewise, is founded on these, upon natural law. What is natural law? We've spoke in Sunday school over the course of the last several weeks on special and general revelation. Natural law is equivalent to general revelation, that which we can understand by the very nature of what God has created and ordered in the universe. Well, along comes Augustine in the 400s, nearly a thousand years after Aristotle, and Augustine writes a book that becomes um, a very influential book uh, entitled The City of God. And for Augustine, there are two cities. There's the city of God and there is the city of man. And for Augustine, the city of man is in bad shape. The city of man is filled with evil people. Why? For Augustine believed in sin. He saw the purpose of government in the city of man as one that was restraining evil. Romans chapter 13, verses 3 and 4. But he also saw government as one that would maintain its power through manipulation and coercion. Why? Because two people whose hearts are set against God will always manipulate and coerce and do evil things, Adolf Hitler. This original sin leads to the ultimate lust for the power, for power and for glory. And thus, for Augustine, government should not be trusted. What happens? The next prevailing thought concerning political theory or political theology, if you will, occurs during the Reformation and two periods of the Reformation in the 1500s and into the early 1600s. As the 1500s would primarily impact and affect mainland Europe, the 1600s would be a Reformation, for example, in England. And in the 1500s, you had a number of prevailing thoughts among the, among the Reformation, the two who primarily dominated reformational uh, political thinking was Martin Luther and John Calvin. Martin Luther, playing off of Augustine, city of God, understood that there were two kingdoms. He called them a left-handed kingdom and a right-handed kingdom. The right-handed kingdom was the kingdom of God in the very sense, not the kingdom of God that you and I might understand as we preach the gospel and people are converted and come to faith in Christ. There's a sense in which all of us live currently at this moment in the kingdom of God. But this isn't the left-handed kingdom to which uh, Luther was speaking. For Luther, this, sorry, right-handed kingdom, this left-handed kingdom 
was the secular government and the church. For Luther and Calvin, they believed in this idea of a very strong uh, state-church relationship. The state should mandate a certain response on behalf of its citizens toward a certain reflection of theology. The church should be the one that then, in some measurable way, spoke back to the government and said to the government, this is what theology or morality is, therefore enforce it upon the people. In the left-handed kingdom, church and state were brought together through the creation of state churches. And yet, Luther himself did not believe in the absolute authority of government. Quote, gracious sir, I owe you obedience in body and property. By the way, this idea of property would be codified in the American Declaration of Independence as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Happiness was understood as an idea flowing from this, this, this idea of property that was preve- uh, prevalent in political thought. I owe you obedience in body and property. Command me within the limits of your authority on earth and I will obey. But if you command me to believe, to get rid of certain books, I will not obey. For then you are a tyrant and overreaching yourself. John Calvin would come along and due to his strong covenantal view of theology, it's no surprise that he would promote a covenantal view of government. Now, in this covenantal view of government, first and foremost, consent was based, uh, or government was based on the consent of the people. And government was meant to be established through covenants between both a ruler and the people. In other words, the people would say to the ruler, uh, we want you to do this. And the ruler would say to the people, I want you to do this. It's kind of like a contract. They'd come together sign a contract, and then this is how everybody was to respond. So there was a mutual understanding, much like what we see in the American form of government. Fast forward to the Reformation in the 1600s, and flowing from Martin Luther and John Calvin would be an idea popularized among Reformational theologians of the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. So it should be, friends, even in our differences with the government, there is still a manner, a spirit, in which we walk in disobedience that is honoring to the Lord. For this idea of the doctrine of the lesser magistrates, the reformers populated an idea that said, if you've got a, let's use this example, a governor that says, I don't know, everybody has to be in their house every day by 7 p.m. But you have a lesser magistrate, the sheriff, who is tasked with the responsibility of policing in a parish. But the, par- but the sheriff says, I'm not going to enforce that on you. The reformers saw this as an appropriate means of rebellion against a higher authority to work through a lesser magistrate. In the 1600s, a very well-known, influential 
pastor from England would come along by the name of Samuel, Samuel Rutherford. And Rutherford, uh, in, 16, in the late 1630s, would write a book called Lex Rex. Before he would write the book Lex Rex, the prevailing thought was Rex Lex. The king is the law. But Rutherford would write and say, no, 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 you've got it wrong. The law is king. Rutherford's ideology would play a prevalent part in the psyche of those who would uh, work out the American Revolution. The law is king. Rutherford maintained that the law has, quote, law has a supremacy of constitution above the king. The constitution gives rulers their power, quote, therefore he must be king by a political constitution and law. And so the law and that consideration is above the king. The king is under the law because there is no absolute power given to him to do what he wishes as man. Rutherford would indeed be an indelible mark in the hearts and lives of those Protestants who left England and came to America and eventually play a part in the American Revolution. Here from some of those early English American preachers. Benjamin Lord, writing in 1752, argued that the command in Romans 13 to submit to, quote, higher powers, end quote, refers only to civil authorities which, quote, which are lawful and good, end quote. An absolute, unlimited monarchy or any arbitrary government which disposes of men's lives, liberties, and estate. There's that word estate again, property, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At pleasure, without law or reason, cannot be the government here intended in Romans 13, for that in nature is unsuitable to the main ends of government. Elijah Williams, a well-known preacher, a tutor of Jonathan Edwards, speaks against the Stamp Act that would be enacted in the uh, mid-1760s. And listen to what he said. Quote, the powers that be in Great Britain are the government therein according to its own constitution. If then the higher powers for the administration rule not according to that constitution, or if any king therefore shall rule so, as to change the government from legal to arbitrary, the power from God fails them. It is then a power not in this text, and so no subjection uh, die to it by the te- due to it by the text. A power that is no better than a pretended one's one cannot challenge any obedience by virtue of this text. This text shows that obedience is due to civil rulers in cases wherein they, they have power to command, and does not call for it any further. In 1764, George Whitfield, you know George Whitfield, a very famous preacher from England, commented on the Stamp Act before it was enacted. He gathered a group of Christians together, pastors, and he says, quote, I can't in conscience leave the town without acquainting you with a secret my heart bleeds for America. Oh, poor New England. 
There is a deep laid plot against both your civil and religious liberties, and they will be lost. Your golden days are at an end. 1765, Americans' golden days are at an end. Why? Whitfield saw the demise of liberty as the demise of America. You have nothing but trouble before you. My information comes from the best authority in Great Britain. I was allowed to speak of the affair in general, but enjoined not to mention particulars. Let me skip the next two slides, just for time's sake, and move to John Allen. These next few slides are pastors who were speaking into the American context not from America, but from Great Britain. So you might say, well, of course, the American preachers would have believed in this. They were speaking to their constituents, but hear what the English pulpits had to say. Quote, it is no rebellion to oppose any king, minister, or governor that destroys by any violence or authority whatever the rights of the people. Shall a man be deemed a rebel that supports his own rights? Timothy Hillard, by the way, some of these are conservative theologians, and some of these were flat-out liberal theologians even denying substitutionary atonement. Timothy Hillard said, quote, it is evident our this indispensable duty to submit to every lawful ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, but if rulers abuse their power and invade the rights of their subjects, the obligation to submission ceases, and it becomes a duty to impose them. Richard Watson stated in his sermon before the University of Cambridge on May 29, 1776, the following, if the nobility, forgetting the duty they owe to the people in return for the rank and distinction they enjoyed above the other members of the community, should ever abet the arbitrary designs of the crown, if the commons should become so wholly selfish and corrupt as to be ready to support any men and any measures, if lastly the king should be so ignorant as his true interest, or so ill-advised as, as to use such uh, degenerate uh, parliaments as the tools of tyrannic government, then we have no doubts in asserting that the people will have a full right to resume the reins of government into their own hands, to lop off the rotten gangrene members and to purge the corruption of the body, politic, in any manner they shall most merit. Watson, on the doctrine of absolute obedience and non-resistance, declared, quote, the doctrine of non-resistance has been principally founded upon a distorted interpretation of some few passages in the epistle, and in particular the 13th chapter of St. Paul's epistle to the Romans has been pressed into the service of tyranny. And coming into the, the American context in the mid-70s and the early 80s, a well-known theologian by the name of Francis Schaeffer, he died in 1984, wrote these words, quote, if there's no final place for civil obedience, then the government has been made autonomous, and as such it has been put in the place of the living God. Acts of state which contradict God's law are illegitimate and acts of tyranny. 
Tyranny is ruling without the sanction of God. To resist tyranny is to honor God. And the bottom line is that at a certain point, there is not only the right, but the duty to disobey the state. An example from Scripture. Paul has a Damascus Road experience in Acts chapter 9, and he's converted. You remember the narrative? Paul is converted, and as soon as Paul is converted, what does he do? He preaches the gospel. He begins to preach the narrative of Jesus. Look with me just real quickly in Acts chapter 9. Chapter chapter 9, verse 19, Paul goes into the synagogue, and he begins to preach. Verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But what did the disciples do? Disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him into the basket. Now Paul is, recal- count, re- Paul is going to recount this experience in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 as an expression of weakness. Paul wants to use this experience in Romans and Acts 9 as an example of human weakness. But listen to how Paul tells a story in 2 Corinthians chapter 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weaknesses, my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever knows that I'm not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Eretus was guarding the city of Damascus for what purpose? In order to seize me. Now, two things are going on here. They want to seize Paul for what purpose? He's preaching the gospel. They don't want the Apostle Paul preaching the gospel. Of course, Paul not preaching the gospel would be what? Disobedience to God. But the state has two compelling issues here. Paul disobeying God by preaching the gospel, and now Paul, with an act of civil obedience, in running from authorities, running from arrests. What does Paul do oftentimes when he is arrested? Or, in the example of chapter 16, when he is beaten and they want to turn him loose where nobody will know about it, what does he appeal to? His Roman citizenship. Paul doesn't say, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 31, God says, no, no, no. 
Paul makes an appeal to his Roman citizenship. Why? He has rights as a citizen that can't be trampled by a tyrannical government. It was a brutal battle. George Washington would serve as the first president of the United States. After two terms, John Adams would run. Washington and Adams both came from the same political party. And in the election of 1801, another well-known American founding father would place his hat in the ring for the presidency of the United States, Thomas Jefferson. It was an interesting battle. It was a close battle. Jefferson ultimately getting into the race for the presidency over issues of religious liberty. Both Adams and Jefferson came from two different parties, ultimately with two prevailing understandings of the role of government. Adams coming from a party that believed in a strong federal central government. Jefferson saying, no. Jefferson desiring decentralized governments, power in the states. <coughs> and one of Jefferson's major issues was the issue of religious liberty. And Baptists were strongly in favor of religious liberty. Did you know that nine of the 13 original colonies in the United States had a state-ordained religion? And not one of them was Baptist. So Baptists were persecuted throughout the early 13 colonies, even during the time of, of John Adams. It would not be until 1853 that the state of Massachusetts would relinquish their demand of being a Presbyterian state. 1853. The Baptist would join the deist Thomas Jefferson for president over and opposed to the believer in John Adams over the issue of religious liberty. And as providence would have it, Thomas Jefferson wins the race in 1801 by just a few votes. Nine months later, on New Year's Day, 1802, John Leland, a Baptist preacher and evangelist from Massachusetts, delivered to President Thomas Jefferson a 1,250-pound block of cheese made from over 900 milk cows, delivered by, it had to be pulled in a cart by six cows. And he delivered this big block of cheese to President Jefferson. And in the red wax, around that 1,250 pound block of cheese, were these words written nearly 
600 years earlier. Rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. I have not postulated for you this morning an understanding of Romans 13 birthed from a contemporary American expression of freedom. But from a long tenured expression of freedom that flows from the text of scripture and voices of church history but I would be amiss this morning to close without, without sharing with you that there too exist in the mainstream of contemporary American Christianity a variety of different beliefs concerning Romans 13. Some believe in an absolute obedience. Absolutely, every moment, we must obey government. Others have modified that to say, unless there is a very specific law of God that government forbids you from obeying or compels you to do that is contrary, then then and only then can you rebel. And yet... I would hope that in the context of this faith family that we can look at those who affirm my position or affirm other position that ultimately we are brothers and sisters in Christ that we can maintain being brothers and sisters in Christ without me telling you or you telling me or we telling one another that your view is in rebellion against God. And secondly, or thirdly, the scripture commands us, friends, that regardless whatever position we take, that we all live our lives in love, care, compassion, respect, even toward those with whom we disagree. And yes, even our rebellion should be in a spirit of humility. Let's pray. God, we would ask that in each of our hearts you would give to us a spirit of submission. that that which we intentionally pursue, Lord, would not be ways in which we could break law, or rebel, that we would fight to find ways in which we could live in submission. For that submission, Lord, ultimately is submission to you. We thank you, God, for the privileges of living in this incredible country, 
where the highest governing authority is indeed the Constitution of the United States. And that there, we do find life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And yet, Lord, we hold that intention knowing that ultimately your church will be persecuted. So grant to us today, Lord, an ultimate desire and passion to walk faithfully with you. For when that day comes and we face the lions and the bears in the Colosseum, And that day when we face a command that believers cannot meet, we might stand with the apostles in declaring, it's better that we obey God rather than man. Would you take a few moments and reflect on the text of Scripture this morning? I don't know your heart, friend, and you don't know my heart, and quite honestly, at times my heart even deceives me. Regardless of the scenario, if the function of our heart is one of rebellion, we stand in opposition to God. Would you submit to Christ today? Would you believe in Christ today? Would you humble yourself before the almighty hand of God? Maybe it's in the context of marriage or job or school. You're struggling with submission. Would you submit to Christ today? In just a few moments, we're going to stand and respond corporately to the preaching of God's Word. As we stand and sing, if you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ, this would be an opportunity for you to ask myself or Pastor Travis what it means to trust in Christ. Maybe you'd just like for us to pray. Pray for your own heart. Pray that you wouldn't operate with a spirit of rebellion. Pray that God would heal a relationship with a boss at work or a child at home. Or thirdly, maybe God has impressed upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with him. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. God, as we respond to you now, might our responses be pleasing to you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me as we sing?